Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. I am really excited about this episode. We're going to be talking about a groundbreaking piece of legislation out of the state of Washington that really is a nationwide leading piece of legislation when it comes to banning toxic chemicals. And we're going to pick apart this piece of legislation, talk about what has recently happened with it and what is to come. And our guest today is Sherry Peel. She is a senior project manager with an organization called Toxic Free Future. And she has been working with them since 2022 and and really playing a critical role in their public advocacy. Um, Sherry got her undergraduate degree in urban planning planning from Cornell University and her master's in city planning from MIT. So we are on with somebody who knows their stuff. So I am really excited to welcome you to Go Green Radio. Sherry, welcome. So glad to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's start by having you give our listeners an overview of this groundbreaking piece of legislation in the state of Washington known as Safer Products for Washington Act. Give us a thumbnail sketch of the law. Okay, great. Um, so Safer Products for Washington was or it is a law that was enacted in 2019, um, and it was enacted to deal with the massive amounts of unnecessary toxic chemicals in everyday consumer products. So it gives the state, the Department of Ecology, the authority to eliminate entire classes of chemicals in widely used products. And importantly, it's also speeding the transition to safer alternatives that will protect both people and the environment. Um, So I can give you a bit more detail about how it works. Um, It sets up a five-year cycle. We've just finished the first of those cycles. Um, And each cycle has four stages. So... Um, stage one is the Department of Ecology selects at least five chemicals or chemical classes to focus on for the cycle. And actually, in this first cycle, um, those chemicals were identified in the law. Um, so phase two is the Department of Ecology, for each one of those chemicals or chemical classes, identifies which consumer products contain those chemicals and can harm both people and the environment. So then phase three is the Department of Ecology determines the regulatory actions that they're going to take for each one of those uh, chemical product combinations. And the way they do this is they do an analysis of uh, potential alternatives, and they have to find that alternatives are safer, um, feasible, which means they They perform the function that the product is intended to perform and available. So they're already on the market and they're being used. And then if they find that there are safer, feasible, available alternatives, um, they then make a regulatory determination. And if there are alternatives that that meet those criteria, they can uh, make a determination that the chemical in that product should be restricted if they don't find that, then it, they could require a reporting um, that, that manufacturers who are using that chemical in that product report to the Department of Ecology, or they could choose to take no action. And then the final uh, phase is rulemaking, where they enact uh, those rules. So we Great. just finished uh, cycle one at the end of May, and we actually have our 
draft priority chemicals for cycle two um, as of, I think it was June 7th, they came out. That's fantastic. And I know that, you know, at the end of May, you just had the Washington State Department of Ecology director sign new rules uh, mm-hmm. that ban toxic chemicals in multiple classes. And I'd like to dig into each one. And I let's start with PFAS. Um, sure. Talk to us about the new restrictions and reporting requirements for PFAS chemicals in specific products and applications. Yeah, absolutely. So PFAS was one of those um, classes that was identified um, in cycle one. And the product categories that ecology looked at with PFAS, there were three, um, aftermarket stain and water resistance treatments. So this would be like if you're... um, if, if the original stain or water resistance has washed out of your outdoor gear or off of your furniture, it's what you spray on afterwards. Mm. Um, and then carpets and rugs, they looked at both indoor and outdoor carpets and rugs, and then leather and textile furnishings, and again, they split that into indoor and outdoor. And for all of those categories, except for um, outdoor leather and textile furnishings, they are restricting PFAS um, in those products. Uh, the restriction goes into effect uh, for uh, January 1st, 2025 um, for this aftermarket stain and water resistance treatments and carpets and rugs, and also for the indoor uh, furnishings. Uh, For outdoor furnishings, they have a reporting requirement that begins actually January 1st, 2024. Mm, Okay, that's coming up quick. Uh, Sherry, what do you think the most, um, let's say, important upshots of these new rules on PFAS chemicals will be in Washington? And what specific ways do you think residents will be safer? Yeah, well, if you think about where people spend their time at home, um, especially young children, um, it's usually on the rug uh, or in close proximity Mm -hmm. to a rug or carpet uh, or on upholstered furniture. And so by taking the PFAS out of those two things, it's really going to reduce the exposure of uh, residents um, to PFAS in their homes and then also, you know, in in their offices um, or other places where they might be you know, around mm-hmm. carpet or upholstered furniture. So, mm-hmm. but, but particularly young children um, who play on the rug and who are, you know, crawling around on furniture, that would be important. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I want to talk about another class of chemicals, and I'm probably going to botch the uh, pronunciation. <laughs> so you, you help us with this. I want to talk about orthophthalates. And how, how do you actually say that? It's phthalates. Yeah, phthalates. How does one pronounce that? It's phthalates. <laughs> phthalates. Orthophthalates. Thank you so yeah. much. First of all, sure. what are these chemicals used for and what impact do they have on human health and safety? Sure. Um, they're used for a variety of things. And so I'll just talk about two of their uses um, relative to the two product categories that Ecology looked at. Um, So Ecology looked at vinyl flooring, and their orthophthalates are used as a softener. Um, So, you know, vinyl uh, naturally is is rigid, Mm -hmm. and so they put orthophthalates in there to make it more pliable. Um, And then in personal care and beauty products, uh, it's very different. Uh, Orthophthalates are used as a fixative for fragrance. So basically what it does is it... um, fixes the fragrance that's mixed in with that, you know, that formulated product that you have uh, okay. that has a, a, some sort of fragrance. And it, 
it slows down the evaporation rate so that when you open your bottle of shampoo or whatever it is, you get that scent that you're looking for. Mm. Um, so in terms of their uh, impacts, orthothalates are associated with disruption of the endocrine system, um, also impacts on reproductive systems, the human reproductive systems, and developmental toxicity, especially to the developing brain in children. Um, and so both of these uses, um, orthothalates in vinyl flooring and orthothalates in personal care and beauty products, will be restricted as a result of this, uh, excuse me, regulation. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. That's, I mean, again, we're going straight to human health and, and safety exactly. and especially our little kiddos, our most vulnerable ones. I, I love that. Um, right. Talk to us about the new rules around flame retardants. What chemicals are part of the new rules and what products are impacted? Sure. Um, well, the large class, it's organohalogen flame retardants. So these are flame retardants um, that contain bromine, chlorine, or fluorine. Those are all halogens. And I'll talk, there, there are two things. I'll break it up. Um, mm-hmm. So organohalogen flame retardants in, um, well, Ecology looked at electronic products, and they split that up between indoor and outdoor electronic products. And this is a huge scope of products. This is um, the largest scope of electronic products that's really been considered anywhere for this kind of restriction. And... Um, they are restricting organohalogen flame retardants in the plastic casings of indoor electronic products. So if you look at, you know, your hairdryer, your toaster, your computer, anything that has a, an outside plastic casing that's going to have some sort of flame retardant in it, and now that will no longer be able to be um, an organohalogen. Um, the second category that they looked at for flame retardants was recreational foam. So this is polyurethane foam. So think about um, if you've ever gone to a kid's gym and they have the foam pit, which are the, just those sure. blocks of yeah. uncovered uh-huh. foam. Yeah, they're a lot of fun to, <laughs> to dive into. Um, <laughs> yes. Practice your flips. Um, <laughs> those have... Uh, those have flame retardants in them. And wow. um, same with the mats, the covered mats um, that are both on the floor or um, are wrapped around equipment. Um, but then they can also be on the walls. So if you're doing a vault and you overshoot a little bit, and you bump up against the mat, prevents you from hitting the concrete wall. Um, yep. And so what they determined there was that um, the flame retardants really aren't necessary for... Um, to meet fire code. Um, and so the restriction is going to be in all of that um, polyurethane foam, and it's the organohalogens along with a certain number of organophosphate um, flame retardants. Um, and the only, uh, the, the place that um, it's, they, they were able to find alternatives, but they weren't able to figure out whether or not the fire code piece applied. And so that's mm-hmm. the wall padding. And so they've held off on restricting the um, uh, flame retardants and wall padding. Um, 
and they are requiring reporting on that. So the reporting okay. manufacturers will need to report to the Department of Ecology if they have wall padding that contains flame retardants. You know, it's amazing, Sherry. This is the first time, and 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 I've been following, you know, chemicals and you know other uh, you know issues related to human health impacts on chemicals. I did not know. And and I had a young child who was in gymnastics for many years. I had no mm-hmm. idea that she was surrounded yeah. with these chemicals. And I think that a lot of consumers are just, I don't know if it's because we've just had a lot of faith in, you know, the government to regulate. If there's something wrong, they'll regulate it. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Or in industry to only put out safe things. And so I'm really, really excited that we're having you on, we're talking this through and exposing what a lot of us, what has just been hidden to, I think, a lot of consumers for decades. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to, we have so much more to unpack about this new law and how it might impact not just the state of Washington, but the whole nation. Um, So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a clean world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. 
Our guest today is Sherry Peel, a senior project manager with Toxic Free Future. And we're talking about an, a groundbreaking piece of legislation out of the state of Washington. They're really leading the nation in banning toxic chemicals from consumer products. And we're talking about each of the various rules and regulations that are involved. Uh, Sherry, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to try and pronounce another chemical. Let's give it a try. Let's move on to alkaphenol ethoxylates. How'd I do? Very close. Alkaphenol right. oxalates. Yeah. All right. Nobody says All right. that. Just call it APEs. <laughs> APEs. There we go. Tell us what these chemicals do to humans and the environment and in what products we find these chemicals. Sure. Um, so with humans, APEs are uh, known as endocrine disruptors. So they um, disrupt the endocrine system and very small amounts of endocrine disruptors early in life can have lifelong impacts. So we really want to be careful about those. Um, in the environment, um, in addition to there being endocrine disruptors, they're also associated with a, it's the combination of aquatic toxicity and persistence. So they not only have impacts on aquatic life, they are also persistent, and so they can build up in the food chain. Mm-hmm. Um, the priority product that the Department of Ecology looked at with APEs was laundry detergent, because APEs in laundry detergent, um, they function as surfactants, so mm-hmm. they contribute to the performance of laundry detergents in cleaning laundry. Um, and what the rule is going to do is restrict them in, in laundry detergent so we'll no longer have APEs in laundry detergent. There are many, many um, safer solutions already on the market, and so um, this is this was not a hard sell, um, mm-hmm. which is not to say it won't have a big impact, um, but it wasn't one of the harder-fought battles because there are so many safer solutions already on the market. Yeah, and we're going to talk about some of those safer solutions to some of these uh, chemicals in in a little bit. But um, let's talk about bisphenols. Um, What is the problem with these chemicals? Where are they found? And how do the new rules impact their use in Washington? Sure. Um, Well, like APEs, um, bisphenols are also associated with endocrine disruption. They are also associated uh, in humans with developmental toxicity, which um, that's toxicity to the developing fetus, a young child, especially around the development of the brain. And they're also toxic to reproductive systems. So that's, um, you know, in men or women, their ability to to reproduce. Um, And in terms of what... These uh, rules did, we were looking at two categories. The first was thermal paper, so think receipt paper, um, Mm. where uh, bisphenols are the developer in uh, formulations that are coated on the paper that change color when they're exposed to heat. Um, So that's just how, like, regular receipt paper uh, traditionally works in the Mm -hmm. cash registers. And then um, we're looking at can liners also for food and drink cans. And so there it's part of the liner that prevents the metal from interacting with the contents of the can. Mm -hmm. And the rule uh, restricts the use of bisphenols in, um, in thermal paper. It also restricts it in drink can linings. 
the conditions for food can linings were a bit different. Um, they weren't. They didn't find a safer alternative. So there, there's going to be a reporting requirement. Gotcha. And quick question, follow up on that. So when the reporting requirements kick in, is that going to be publicly available information so consumers can say, you know, you know what, I'd rather not buy things that have that in it, even if it's not restricted? Right. Um, the lack of access to information is extremely frustrating, I realize, yeah. and it, it, it really hampers the ability to make informed decisions. Um, the purpose of the reporting here is actually primarily to, de- to inform the Department of Ecology um, mm-hmm. about what's being used and where and by whom to inform um, possible future regulation. Um, the database is not up yet. Um, I'm sure it will be, will be public, but it won't necessarily be primarily as a consumer-friendly um, mm-hmm. database. So if you knew what you were doing and you were very um, uh, dedicated, you could go in there and figure it out. Uh, we have other reporting requirements now through the Children's Safe Product Act where you can go in and see who's reported on a whole list of chemicals that are in children's products. But again, it's not um, intended as a consumer-facing or, or a citizen-facing tool. I'm hoping that there's an organization out there, I don't know if Toxic Free Future would be one of them, that can kind of translate that information the way that, you know, the Environmental Working Group does that kind of thing. I mean, they can Mm -hmm. take, you know, databases a mile deep and put it into an infographic so that everybody can understand or a searchable database that's consumer friendly. Because the thing is, as you mentioned, you know, some of these chemicals aren't reaching children through children's products. They're reaching children Mm -hmm. through breast milk or you know, yeah. in utero. Um, and so they're in adult things that get to kids. And so that, you know, I was just wondering how that was working. You know, with all the products, I mean, you're talking about an incredible breadth of consumer products that are impacted by this law. I can't imagine the kind of pushback that was probably involved. I'm just assuming maybe maybe there's none, but I doubt it. Um, I'd love for you to talk to us, you know, about what it took to bring this law to fruition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it was actually an interesting story, and definitely any time um, the chemicals are going to be regulated, the chemical industry fights back and fights back hard mm-hmm. um, because they don't want restrictions on their products. Um, but this law was actually passed in 2019 as part of a larger package of legislation to protect the orca population in Puget Sound. Um, I don't know if you might remember, in the summer of 2018, um, there was a mother orca, part of our resident pod. Um, her name is, her official name is J35. Her nickname is Talequa. There had not been a calf born to the pod for a number of years. And she had this calf, and it died fairly quickly. And but then she carried it um, for 17 days, and it got oh. just a huge amount of. Um, I remember that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, orcas and salmon, which are the the orcas made food source here, are always part of our conversation in Washington State. But that moment really galvanized political support um, to help sustain this population. And so there was a package of bills. Um, some of it had to do with like reducing boat traffic, um, protecting the shoreline, protecting their food supply. But then this bill was one of those bills um, because 
toxics from these products don't just stay in the product. They get out and there's a lot of scientific evidence that they build up in the orcas because the orcas are at the top of the food chain mm-hmm. um, and that they impact the, the orcas' abilities uh, to reproduce and then you know, grow successfully to maturity. So that was how this bill, that it was a key moment in time that enabled this bill to pass. You know, it's kind of interesting because just a couple of weeks ago on Go Green Radio, I was talking to um, a, a, a tremendous individual from the state of Minnesota. We were talking about some groundbreaking legislation on PFAS chemical bans in mm-hmm. her state. And th- the galvanizing moment was, you know, the tragic sickness and death of a teenager um, from PFAS exposure, a terrible chemo- uh, cancer situation for this young girl and, and her family. And it's, it's, I understand why sometimes it takes this kind of tragedy to move lawmakers past other barriers that they may have. But if we have to wait for tragedies to make smart decisions in public policy, heaven help us, you know, I mean, I get it, but at the same time, it's like, gosh, guys, uh, let's, let's use science and our critical thinking and make good decisions before we have a slew of tragic cases that break our hearts. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, you know, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your organization, Toxic Free Future. I mean, besides working on this law, tell us more about the organization's work and how our listeners could maybe get involved and support you. Sure. Um, So Toxic Free Future is a national leader in environmental health research and advocacy. We use science, education, and activism to both drive strong laws and also corporate responsibility um, to protect the health of people on the planet. Um, So we do original research. We we have a science program. We do original research and product testing um, for toxic chemicals in... (laughs) most recently kitchen utensils, <laughs> um, but we also have tested breast milk and a number of other things, and that informs uh, what we then advocate for. Um, so we have a long presence in Washington State, um, really building Washington State policy around toxic chemicals, uh, which is, again, one of the strongest in the nation. We also have a market campaign um, called the Mind the Store campaign to push retailers um, to selling safer products on their shelves. Um, Our main tool there is the retailer report card, um, which will, the next version is going to come out just before the Christmas shopping season or the holiday shopping season uh, in November. Um, And then both our our state work, our state policy work and our market work um, inform our federal work. So, um, for example, that all the work around PFAS um, mm-hmm. has b- both in the states um, and then market work has led to uh, work in Congress um, to get a uh, ban on PFAS and food packaging. And we haven't won the whole thing yet, but we have won um, certain victories within Congress. Um, hopefully it'll be reintroduced and passed in the next session. Um, so working towards that that mm-hmm. that national ban um, on toxic chemicals. Well, we, um, we people, all have you guys to thank for 
being the watchdogs for us because a lot of the things you're working on are things that are not well known or understood in the general population to even help us advocate alongside you. I'm sorry I interrupted. You go right ahead. Oh, no, that's that's fine. I was just going to say people can yeah learn more about all of these things um, just by going to our website. We have action alerts um, that people can uh, respond to to uh, either write to their favorite retailers or, you know, there are uh, when things come up around policy, we have action alerts around that um, or directly support us uh, on our website. Absolutely. And just for our listeners, that website's really easy to find. It's toxicfreefuture.org. Very, very simple to find. Um, you know, I know that we're going to be taking a commercial break here in just a second, but I, I want to say it again. Thank you, Sherry. And thank you to all of your colleagues at Toxic Free Future. I mean, you guys are on the front lines of a battle that a lot of people don't even know is being waged. And so I'm so grateful for the good work that you guys do. We are going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have more with Sherry Peel talking about this amazing new legislation out of Washington State. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. We are having an amazing conversation with Sherry Peel today. She is a senior project manager with Toxic Free Future, and you can find their website at www.toxicfreefuture.org. We're talking about uh, uh, just a really 
role model piece of legislation that's recently come out of the state of Washington. The first cycle of rules just went into place at the end of May. Um, And and in order to get these rules adopted, I know, Sherry, that Toxic Free Future worked with other organizations to send a letter to the governor stressing the importance of adopting these new rules. Talk to us about who you partnered with and in general, why coalitions like this are such an important part of successful advocacy. Sure. Um, so that letter was signed by 25 organizations. It was a really broad range of groups um, from fairly small local organizations that are Washington-based uh, to national groups, and they cover a number of different angles, um, all of which intersect with chemicals somehow. But just to give you some examples, um, some of our more locally-based groups, we have the Afghan Health Initiative, which works with um, the Afghan community in the Puget Sound region here, um, many of whom are, are refugees. Mother Africa, working again with um, communities of color uh, here in the Puget Sound region. Uh, Earth Ministry represents a number of faith-based communities uh, in Washington State. And then just some examples, which I'm sure everybody's familiar with at the national level, um, NRDC, Earth Justice, and Sierra Club all signed the letter. So it it is really critical to work in coalition with other groups um, because both both when you're developing uh, initiatives and then also when you're advocating for them when you're developing initiatives that diversity of perspective and experience is really key to uh, developing an an initiative that avoids blind spots um, mm-hmm. and really functions. Um, and functions for everyone, um, both you know the people that are buying the products, the uh, the animals at the end of the uh, where all these toxins go, but then also for the manufacturers uh, mm-hmm. in terms of leveling the playing field there, um, so that all manufacturers are working towards you know the the same the same rules. Um, mm-hmm. And then when when we're advocating for for a particular initiative. Each of these groups has its own uh, constituency, you know, some of which overlap, certainly, but the more people we are able to bring um, to support any given initiative, especially one that um, is hard fought, uh, the stronger the case we are to make to you know, the, the people who are in charge of making the decisions on this. And in this case, we were, we were able to win, which was fantastic. Yeah, it is fantastic. And what a what an amazing group of of collaborators. That is that's a powerhouse group. I mean, um congratulations on you Thank know you. helping to bring that together. I think it's important for our listeners to know that there are viable alternatives. As you mentioned in an earlier segment to these chemicals that manufacturers can use. Um, It's not like now that there's a ban on these chemicals, those products have to go away. We can just have safer versions of those. I read a blog that you wrote in April, and you mentioned a comprehensive report that was issued by the Washington State Department of Ecology that outlines these available alternatives. And I'd like to dig into some of those alternatives a little bit and help our listeners gain a deeper understanding. Um, let's talk about alternatives to some of those flame retardants that we talked about before. Talk to us about what safer options are open to manufacturers. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll back up just a, for a moment and talk about what 
what constitutes a safer alternative? What are the options? Mm-hmm. Um, and one would be that the chemical of concern might not be necessary at all in in the product. And so there an example is actually the foam, that flame retardants in recreational foam weren't necessary were not necessary, and so they were able to just mm-hmm. eliminate it. Um, a second thing would be a safer chemical, and here we're talking about an inherently safer chemical, um, not one that's toxic, but then you like you box it up and you reduce exposure because that mm-hmm. that barrier is going to break at some point, and that toxic chemical is going to get out. So we're talking about inherently less hazardous chemicals. Um, and then another uh, possibility would be a safer material. So you could switch, and, and this is another uh, flame retardant example, you could switch from um, a plastic enclosure to a steel enclosure or some other material that is inherently safer and therefore wouldn't need, you know, steel doesn't need flame retardants. That's right. Um, or you could move to a different process. And so there an example is... Um, from the, the thermal paper, um, one of the safer examples that they cited was e-receipts um, because, again, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no need to put a yep. bisphenols in e-receipts. Um, but to get back to your, um, to your question about uh, flame retardants specifically, um, so there were... Uh, they did. They did cite for, for electronics. They did cite alternative materials such as steel. But then, um, at the chemical level, there are actually safer flame retardants that work with these plastic resins. They're mainly phosphate-based, and there's actually a third-party certification called uh, TCO certified that um, certifies electronics products, and they require for that certification that um, manufacturers use a safer flame retardant and get that uh, third-party certified. It's a, it's a system called green screen that, that uh, it's a methodology for assessing the hazard of chemicals. And so this needs to be, um, according to green screen, a safer chemical. And they, they have all of those um, safer flame retardants posted so that anybody can then go use them. Any other manufacturer can go in and find one of these flame retardants and begin implementing it themselves. So it's... Um, yeah, if listeners are interested, um, they could go to TCO certified and look up TCO certified products because, and, and they're by, you know, they're, these are not obscure manufacturers. They're all the main right. ones. Um, and so you can find uh, products that are, are now out ahead of this regulation even and, and have safer flame retardants in them. Thanks for that, Sherry. That was great. And I, I appreciate the resource because a lot of our listeners do use those resources when we give them out on the show. So thanks for that. Um, you know, anybody who's been listening to my show for any amount of time at all knows that PFAS is a big deal to me. And it's mostly because of the groundwater contamination in my own town. Um, and so mm. we are really inundated with PFAS. So I like talking about it. And so um, <laughs> I, I know that the report shows that PFAS chemicals are not necessary on carpets, rugs, and upholstered furniture. What are some alternatives? Right. So for carpets, um, they identified for resid- – basically, you, you take out the PFAS just altogether. And um, they – found 
that some fibers just don't need a topical treatment. So for residential rugs, they cited wool, polypropylene, and polyester um, don't need them. And then for commercial rugs, because usually manufacturers manufacture separately for the the residential versus the commercial markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and for commercial rugs, the manufacturers had started making, for example, um, solution-dyed nylon fibers um, where the stains can't um, adhere to it because there's no place to adhere to the fiber. Um, Interesting. See, that's innovative. I love it. (laughs) Right. And then uh, for, again, these different processes, um, for upholstered furniture, you know, some of the things they cited were... (laughs) Use slip covers, <laughs> use stain <laughs> removers. There are um, EPA Safer Choice is another really important resource. Um, this is another third-party certification run by EPA, and all of the ingredients. It's for formulated products, so think about anything that is basically a liquid or a gel and is designed to ultimately go down the drain. Um, so that's you know anything from toothpaste to cleaners. Um, well, actually. Yeah, toothpaste wouldn't be covered under this because it's regulated differently, but mm-hmm. certainly any cleaners. Um, uh, and so EPA Safer Choice does have um, both products that act as um, uh, they protect against stains, so you can apply them along with like mm-hmm. Nick Wax is another one. Um, but then they also have EPA Safer Choice cleaners, so you can remove stains. Yeah, I love EPA Safer Choice. And that's a great, you know, you can just Google it and it, you can easily find that. And, you know, it's an ever-growing database of products. I check it routinely. And so um, thank thank you for that. Um, what are some safer coatings for beverage cans instead of bisphenols? And you don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this one, but just give us some idea of what is available to manufacturers. Right. So, um they identified, I'm looking at the report right now, they, they ident- there's a chart, um, and they identified six, um, six safer coatings, uh, four of which are made by Sherwin-Williams. One is made by a manufacturer called PPG, and one is made by a manufacturer called Metlac. Um, and they're basically just alternative um, coatings that manufacturers can use to spray inside their, their cans, but they are safer. They, d- they don't contain mm-hmm. uh, any um, chemicals of high concern. How about laundry detergents, uh, you know, with stain treatments? What are some safer alternatives there? Yes. Um, again, there is a chart, but speaking of unpronounceable chemical names, most of <laughs> fall into that category. Um, uh, sodium lauryl sulfate is... Um, one that you'll see on a number of detergents, um, and that that is safer. Um, but in order to uh, identify um, safer alternatives, I just look for the safer choice label. There are plenty mm-hmm. um, of safer alternatives out there that Absolutely. are already EPA safer choice. 
And I want to reiterate that this list, this chart that has been put out um, by the, by the state of Washington, these aren't theoretical. You know, we have this idea. What if you try this? What if you try? These are viable alternatives. These right. have been tested, um, and and so I just want to make sure that our listeners understand that important distinction. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back uh, with more of a Sherry Peel on what Washington State is doing to keep consumers safe um, by banning some of the most egregious and unhealthy toxic chemicals out there. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. World. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you're with us today. We've been talking with Sherry Peel from Toxic Free Futures, or Toxic Free Future, singular. Uh, You can find their website at toxicfreefuture.org. And we've been talking about safer products for Washington. It's a law that was passed back in 2019, and now it's starting its five cycles of, of implementation. And cycle one has just completed. What are you guys advocating for in cycle two, Sherry? Well, at a high level, we're looking for ecology to continue its leadership in identifying and restricting uh, toxic chemicals that are widely used where safer solutions exist. Um, So we're actually really pleased with the draft list that they put out. Um, They they put out seven uh, priority chemicals and chemical classes a couple of weeks ago. We're in a comment period now. So those include... um, lead and lead compounds, which you'd think would already be fully regulated. They are not. Um, Formaldehyde and formaldehyde releasers, which are used widely in um, personal care products, which we're actually restricting through a separate law in Washington, um, but also in wood products, a number of other places. Um, Some specific siloxanes, which we're concerned about because they can be used as an alternative for PFAS. 
um, and 6-PPD, which has been shown, well, California is doing work on this as well, um, to uh, kill coho salmon. So mm-hmm. there's more information on our website about all of this if people are interested. Look at the press release section. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. And and excellent work. Again, my highest praise to Toxic Free Future. I'm, I'm sure this is happening or, or will happen, but um, are there other states or legislators from other states that are preparing to follow Washington's lead and replicate this legislation? Well, we've seen other states um, follow Washington's lead on other issues. Um, like we were I think the first to ban uh, PFAS in food packaging and firefighting foam. And we would, um, as particularly as we see success with this model, we would love to see um, other states do the same um, and build on this success and, and complement it by looking at other chemical product combinations. Absolutely. I mean, there's really no sense in just one state doing all of this research on viable alternatives and coming up with a a great five cycle, you know, project timeline, basically, for implementing the law and and have all 49 other states have to make up their own dance moves, <laughs> you know, um, let, let's, let's not reinvent the wheel. So I, I'm sure this will come um, if it hasn't already, um, but the, you guys are really paving some, some great new territory. One of the components of the law that personally just really resonates with me, and I think it's really important, is the requirement for manufacturers to disclose the use of certain chemicals. Uh, You know, one of the things that's always aggravated me, like going to the store, and I shouldn't be buying these, I know, you know, but like I could go and get a package of cookies and a plastic wrapping, and I would know, you know, the ingredients of the cookies, the nutritional value of the cookies, which would be basically zero, but still... I wouldn't know if there were endocrine disrupting chemicals in the plastic packaging around the cookies that could leach into the food and then get into my body. And I have always found that so aggravating and, and, you know, upsetting that manufacturers don't have to disclose everything that a consumer is getting when they purchase their, their products. I'd love to have you talk to us about what you think the upshot or the outcome of this mandatory reporting will be. Yes. Well, first of all, we totally agree with you. Um, we think that uh, there should be full disclosure about chemical ingredients of all products and packaging so that we can all make informed decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, the mandatory reporting in this case is actually, as I mentioned before, it's, it's not actually primarily intended to be consumer-facing. Mm-hmm. It's primarily intended to help ecology um, determine uh, future regulatory decisions um, it, to, in, in, to inform those regulatory decisions. That information should be public, but again, it might not be the easiest it's, uh, to go in and, and uh, furrow through um, mm-hmm. possible, but it, that's not its primary purpose. <laughs> Right. And and if, if that's something that the government isn't doing, that's fine. They're doing this for their own purposes. But again, I'm going to I'm going to put it out into the universe, whether it's your organization or somebody else. Please, please translate that information for consumers, because I think that in my mind, the upshot of this is the more that people become aware of what is happening with that mandatory reporting, 
the more we may see the power of the purse start to shift the market. Uh, you know, yeah. if we know that there are certain products that are using things we don't want for our families and certain products that are equivalent that are not using those and we know it, um, there's nothing like consumer preference moving in another direction to encourage manufacturers to do better um, with their products. So I am hopeful that that will be the case. Um, you know, when, and I, and again, no pressure, Sherry, but <laughs> this is my chance as the host of the show to push for things sure. that I think are important, you know, what the heck. Um, yep. so, you know, when I think about the cost to taxpayers to, to clean up these chemicals once they're released into the environment or the cost of healthcare for people whose health has been adversely affected by these chemicals, it's, it's astounding really that manufacturers have been allowed to operate in a way that has not made them responsible for any of that cost. Mm -hmm. um, what changes do you hope to see in coming years to protect not only our health, but also our pocketbooks from all the chemical pollution we've been inundated with for decades? Right. Um, well, <laughs> preventing the problem is the most cost-effective solution. And mm -hmm. so that's what we are working to do. Um, Ultimately, what we want to see is companies, when they are designing products, considering the inherent hazard of all of those chemical ingredients at the same level that they're considering the question, does this product work? Yeah. <laughs> because they should be required to demonstrate the products are safe before they sell them. Um, and we wouldn't need to deal with all the costs that are associated, you know, both human health and environmental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And, you know, one of the things we haven't really talked about, Sherry, but, you know, you're a mom, I'm a mom, and a lot of us are talking about this is the cumulative effect of all of these chemicals. We can break it down into a spreadsheet and say, this chemical could cause this human health impact, and this chemical can cause this human health impact. But it's really tough for all the obvious reasons to say what the cumulative impact of all of these chemicals might be to human health. The, the one thing we do know is that Americans are having a lot of health problems that, uh, you know, maybe we had them and didn't report them, you know, decades ago, or maybe they're new, but we are in a, a chemical stew um, that really is not good for us. And, and just as a as a human being, as a mom, what are your thoughts on uh, the legacy that you hope to leave with the work that you're doing in terms of future Americans' health? Sure. Um, well, the preventing or protecting ourselves from toxic chemicals in products is not something that can be done at the consumer level. Um, mm -hmm. So even if all of the products were labeled with all the chemicals they contain, it's really impossible as a practical matter for individuals to review all of that and then make informed decisions. I mean, you'd need to know the hazard of all of those things. And frankly, yeah. who has the time <laughs> um, to read the packaging of every That's single right. thing that you buy and then make an informed decision about that packaging? Um, so... I hope and, and my organization hopes to be making systemic changes um, that will protect all of us because it really has to happen at the systemic level. So first we support leadership companies that are going out 
ahead of regulation, um, both manufacturers and retailers that are moving towards safer chemicals because they're they're paving the way for this. I appreciate that so much, Sherry. And and I think, you know, all the work that you guys are doing is just so important. I'm sad to say we've reached the end of our hour, but it was so good having you on. We'll have to have you on another time. And thank you to you and Toxic Free Future for your work. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.